I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. I'm your host, Keon Sabani. Today we have a special guest. It's not going to be entirely Real Madrid related, but knowing me, knowing what this podcast is, I will try to twist it and turn it into a Real Madrid conversation as much as I possibly can. But today we have Ryan O'Hanlon making another appearance on the podcast. His first since his Los Angeles cameo during preseason, which was a lot of fun. Ryan O'Hanlon wrote this book called Net Gains. Inside the Beautiful Games Analytical Revolution, and it's fascinating. I read this last year. Ryan, I can't remember exactly when you published it, but it was a few months ago that I actually finished reading it. I took a bunch of notes on it, and I wanted to ask you about this book ever since. So first of all, welcome to the show, and congratulations on the success of publishing your first book. Thank you. I I, uh, I appreciate that. It, uh, October 18th of last year. Wow. came out. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Okay. I only know that date exactly. Well, I know it exactly because it was an important day in my life. Cause it's when I published my first book, but it's all, it was also at exactly a month before the world cup started. So mm. I didn't realize it had been that long. Just, it's crazy it just that flew it, by. Well, yeah, that's almost a year ago now, which I'm just realizing that that's almost a year ago now. And I'm, I might have an existential crisis on your pod. So <laughs> it, it's, it's fine. Like I, I've, I've said it many times. I feel like time has been a blur, especially since the pandemic. I, my concept yep. of dates is all over the place. I don't remember exactly when it was when I saw you in Los Angeles uh, and time, it just, everything moves so quickly, the news cycle, everything. So but when did you start writing the book? Um, it's a tricky question because uh, there's multiple answers. I started thinking about the idea, honestly, the end of 2018, probably, um, which was kind of right around when, like, using numbers in writing about soccer wasn't becoming common. But I think, like, you guys were probably doing it on your site. I was working at The Ringer at the time, and I was d- doing a ton of it in my stuff. Um Stats Bomb was publishing a bunch of stuff at that point. 538 was doing soccer stuff. Um, so it felt like, I don't know, it felt, 
this is kind of right around, right around when like Liverpool was starting to kick into gear too. And they're obviously one of the, one of the main, they're not really a protagonist in my book, um, but they're kind of one of the main drivers of all of this. So things were kind of coming together. It felt like in 2018, especially after the world cup. Um, and then I left my job, worked on the proposal for a while with my agent, then uh, finished it kind of the proposal, like end of 2019. And then I don't know if you know, but there was a pandemic uh, beginning of 2020 and people weren't really interested in buying books that weren't uh, essentially either written by the then president of the United States or one person, a person who was related to him or like self-help books. So the market for like buying a book about soccer analytics uh, cooled off for a little while, but then we eventually sold it um, around Thanksgiving uh, 2020. So then basically from there, I kind of started writing it. Um, and I basically had a year uh, first draft was due December 2021. And then edits, you know, from there, we probably finished the copy for the most part by April of, of last year. So it's a pretty quick turnaround from when I actually started writing the book. A year is not that long. Um, so, but it took a lot longer from the germination of the idea to when it got published. Got it. Got it. So well, like it's, it's funny because you also chose a niche to write about. Like if you had chosen to write a book called Cristiano Ronaldo versus Lionel Messi, the definitive, the definitive um, decision, <laughs> like you would, it would have been like uh, just a totally broader market, but you chose a, a very fascinating subject. I've always been interested in this because I mean, now there's a lot, it's 2023. Uh, it's hard to say there's no one, writing about analytics, as you said earlier on, because you were at Grantland as well before the ringer, correct? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot. I used to read a lot of basketball uh, analytics at that time, be it on Grantland, later the ringer, but also ESPN. I'm a huge fan of Zach Lowe. I love reading that kind of style of uh, basketball writing. No one was really doing that for soccer. Uh, I think you were, I think Mike Goodman was, uh, I'm sure there were yep. a few others. You mentioned stats bomb, but there was nothing like, I, I always found it interesting. Like the, the, the limited amount of people who were able to make analytics fun and readable and turn it into a story and paint a picture. Uh, it, there was not many people who, who could do that. Um, I, there now it's just, there's just more people doing analytics, uh, I think you could argue some of them are are probably taking things out of context and not applying it the appropriate yes. way, but it's definitely a very oversaturated thing now. Um, I, I the reason I found your book really interesting is because you went far back, um, and and talk not necessarily about the fan perspective and the fan use of analytics, but the way professionals are using it and how it's evolved over time. And I thought we could start all the way from the top uh, name that I had did not know some this person existed until I read your book was Charles Reap. Um, can you explain who, who Reap was? Yeah. So he was this, um, he was an accountant in the Royal Air Force um, in the UK uh, during the, t the two, I think both world wars. And he kind of got into soccer. I think it was, I forget it's, either Herbert Chapman or one of the other Arsenal managers. Um, as we said, my book came out a year ago, so I may have forgotten minor details, but one of the Arsenal managers showed up to the base that he was at um, 
And the way he kind of described soccer made Charles Reap think think of it as more of an intellectual pursuit. I don't he hadn't really thought of soccer. You know, he thought of soccer as oh, it's a bunch of these like jocks running around and like banging into each other, you know. Um, and the way Herbert Chapman kind of talked about it from a strategic perspective perspective got Charles Reap interested in it as a kind of intellectual pursuit. So he started going to games, and this is like before there was floodlights at stadiums. So he would go or at least the stands wouldn't be lit up. So he'd go to these games and he'd have like a miner's helmet on his head. You know, those ones with like a little flashlight to light up his notebook. And he developed this shorthand, which I've, I've seen copies of. I've actually seen actual copies of it um, where he's essentially doing like what Opta does that we take for granted, right? Recording everything that happens with the ball in a game. Um, and he developed this way to write it in his notebook and he would go to the games and record everything that happened. Um, and so he sort of created, he was able to create like a data set with all of this information about what was happening in soccer games. And I think interestingly, especially given what you mentioned about like lack of context, his whole thing was like, I don't want to count stuff just to count it like i don't who cares like the number of times this guy dribbled right he's like i want to count all this to kind of try to understand how this sport works better and ultimately try to figure out like what things you do on a field that help you win right so his kind of famous um thing is that he found that uh most goals come from possessions of you know three or fewer passes basically um while a much smaller percent come from longer possessions. So that sort of, he took that conclusion and was essentially like, you know, all of these European teams that are so concerned with like emulating Brazil at the time, right? Cause like the game wasn't as uh, connected. So you would see teams play at a world cup and suddenly Brazil would be like passing the ball sideways and it would be like, wait, you can do that. <laughs> um, and he was like, these teams are just wasting their time. Like they think it looks pretty and you know, whatever, but they're not increasing their chances of scoring. And he was like, we should just basically boot it up the field and chase after it, try to score, try to win it back, do it all over again. So he, his ideas, despite him being kind of an outsider, those ideas are very like uh, masculine, I guess, you know, kick it long, be strong, try to win mm. the ball back, etc. So I think he was able to gain purchase within the game because the ideas that he came across, came on over came across through data were ideas that a lot of the British managers at the time wanted to be true basically so he started working at Watford Wolves um famously at Watford Watford kind of shot up through all the divisions um up to the first division and um Reap was kind of basically like the you know data analyst who was like helping drive the way that Watford Watford was playing under uh, Graham Taylor and um, Graham Taylor eventually became the England manager and Charles Reap, you know, he didn't work for England directly, but I don't need to get into all of that controversy there, but essentially Charles Reap's ideas sort of got all the way up to the English national team. And under Graham Taylor, uh, England famously, uh, failed to qualify for the 1994 World Cup while playing a kind of kick and run style as as we referred to it in the States here when I was growing up. And so to bring it full circle, the issue with Charles Reap's finding was that yes, more goals came from shorter possessions, but longer possessions were more likely to lead to a goal. 
Mm. Um, so it was kind of an issue of correlation versus causation. And he basically misread his data. So he became a kind of anathema to English soccer. There's tons of articles written about how he ruined English soccer, how his bad math kind of destroyed um, the direction of, you know, the, the f- birthplace of soccer, if you want to agree of football. Um, and so it, it, I, that was kind of my conception of him. But then as I did some reporting for the story and met some people, my mindset about him kind of changed. So that that's the, the general gist of him. Well, it's interesting how much football has changed since then. I mean, even not even like from since 1994 when, when they failed to qualify, but even in the last, you know, I'd say five, seven, 10 years, it's, it's changed so much. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I think if this is a very unfair thing to do, but if I were to, summarize your book or at least come to a conclusion as with regards to what works what is the best way to play football which obviously still is subjective is like just create the most chances whoever creates the most chances eventually the math adds up you win you win the most probably probably right yeah Uh, of course there's so much more that goes into it uh, that we can discuss but i did think it was interesting also that so many people who joined the analytical revolution in soccer, uh, like Charles Reap, were not actually from a soccer background. Like, you know, Luke Bourne appears later in the book as like, you know, decades after Charles Reap, for example. Uh, I can't remember what was his background. Uh, maybe we can start there. Who who was Luke Bourne and, and what was his background? Yeah, he's a fellow Canadian, actually. Love it. Um, well, not fellow for me, for you. Yes. Um, so he, he was like a, he described he studied movement basically he that that's what he was interested in how organisms whether as groups or by themselves like move throughout the world um and so he's got he's educated out the ass has every degree you could want worked at los alamos and um you know the example i use in the book he worked on this problem where so a helicopter there's a problem with helicopters where where there was where if there was a hole in one of the propellers on the helicopter, it would not matter, like a bullet hole. It, the helicopter would be fine. And then if there were two bullet holes, same thing, helicopter would be fine. But if there's three, the helicopter just falls out of the sky. And the issue with that is you don't know, because there's no conceivable, dif- there's no noticeable difference of what's happening. You don't know um, that the helicopter is like one hole away in the propeller from <laughs> falling out of the sky. So he worked on this problem. Um at Los Alamos, where trying to find, figure out how they could allow the pilot essentially to detect this issue. And I guess what they did is they put like tons of little sensors all over the helicopter. And what it found was that the vibration characteristics of the helicopter like changed ever so slightly. Um, and so they were able to use that technology to create a kind of warning system, I guess, with the helicopters. And that technology has since been used to like monitor bridges, um, which are very similar. Like a bridge is fine until it collapses basically. Right. But there's a way where you can essentially like make a bridge vibrate ever so slightly. And the characteristics change enough where you can tell, Oh, this bridge is actually very close to collapsing. We need to re um, reassess the, the, you know, foundation and kind of strengthen it. So I only bring those up because those are very, uh, kind of important and difficult problems to solve. And Luke Bourne is now uh, 
he's a co-owner of AC Milan. So he now is working in soccer um, and trying to figure out soccer. And he described like figuring out soccer, measuring soccer, determining what actually works um, as one of the hardest intellectual problems he's ever worked on. Um, He he got into sports because there was a data set of tracking data in the, from an NBA game. Um, and he called it like the rich, richest data set of movement he'd ever seen. It had every, you know, it has like takes millions of pictures per second, has every, the location of the ball and all the players at all times. So he just was fascinated by that and started, you know, studying the NBA kind of became one of the leading sort of analytical minds in the NBA eventually worked for the uh, Sacramento Kings. And then, from there, I think he kind of saw that soccer was a pretty ripe and potentially lucrative area for um, someone of his his expertise. So he first worked for Roma. Um, he was like their director of analytics back in when Roma made the semifinals of the Champions League, actually. When was that? 20, um, 2018. Um, and it's funny, like I knew he was working there and I'm thinking, oh, like this is it. Like, mm. especially when Roma and Liverpool played, it was like you know finally like smart teams are like winning like this is amazing and then i talked to luke and he was like yeah i had no effect um, on anything he was like luciano spalletti the then manager he's like he would buy me a bunch of <laughs> he'd make me espressos every day but he wouldn't give a shit about any of the the analytical findings that i revealed to him mm. so then luke went to the kings and then from there he actually teamed up with billy bean um the you know moneyball hero um and they first bought Toulouse in France um, got them promoted relatively quickly. Toulouse actually just won the French League Cup this past season. And then uh, a year ago, they were part of a group that took over AC Milan and now they're running AC Milan. Well, I, I think it's really interesting because the reason I brought up that, you know, Luke Bourne and, and Charles Reap, they didn't come from soccer backgrounds. To me, what I understood from reading the book was that what Bourne was doing in a lot of ways is trying to solve a, a sport that hasn't been solved in the way other sports have been. Like when we look at basketball, it's, you know, and, and maybe there is never going to be 100% clear. This is the way, and this is always be the way the sport always evolves and, and diff- the truth always changes. But in basketball, there are five players in soccer there are 11 players and they a lot of them have wildly different functions in the team there are so many moving parts there's 90 minutes there's uh you know we can come up with the idea like okay we need to create the most chances and then the discussion is you have to peel back how do we create the most chances where does this player need to move um what are like the the moving pieces in the build up and of course Busquets comes into the book you know like i think halfway through or three quarters of the way through as someone like okay this guy is not like the person you would think about in terms of creating the most chances, but then you outline like the, his importance, for example. Um, but I think the non-soccer background of Bourne and Reap, maybe more so in Bourne's case, although he has had a lot of success, is convincing people who grew up in the sport, played professionally, coached professionally, to like take their nerdy analytical stuff seriously whereas it seems like a lot of the coaches that he worked with were dismissive of me like okay where does intuition come in where does feeling come in where does instinct you know like you for example like i you know i have to shoehorn as many realms of things in this as, as i possibly can but like 
would you like Ancelotti's philosophy of like I would never tell Modric what to do. I would never tell Zidane what to do because these guys will. These guys are the ones who decide the game. Not you know, no like analytics is going to tell me otherwise. So it, it almost seemed like Bourne had success with maybe some of the smaller teams, and of course there's FC. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce him, Mitch Michelin, Michelin, who had a, an incredible amount of success using analytics. Um, but it almost seems like the higher you go up the totem pole, the harder it is to convince you know teams like that. So I, I don't know. Would you say that's an accurate kind of assessment? No, it's definitely accurate, and it's it's accurate in part because it's like you know Real Madrid. It's like what does it even mean to convince? like Real Madrid to do something right. Like you have Florentino Perez and then you have like this whole bureaucracy of people that affect decisions at the club. Right. So it's like, you know, it's like a soccer clubs. Like I think we sometimes oversell how much money um, these teams make. You know, if you look at a fortune 500 company compared to like Real Madrid's revenue, it's not even, not even close, but like these are big institutions. Right. And it's not like convincing one person is going to get you, um, as far as it might at one of these smaller clubs or at one of these smaller clubs where like Brighton and Brentford, for example, are two very analytically savvy teams and mm-hmm. they're just owned by two guys that used to be professional sports betters. So they bought the teams and then now they're like, guess what? This is how we're doing things, right? Like that's the easiest way yeah. um, to affect change. And, you know, that's why buying AC Milan is potentially a way <laughs> uh, to make that happen. But yeah, it's true. I mean, it's interesting, right? It's like, you know, you mentioned Real Madrid, And I think one of the things you learn is you, I think one of the things with like analytics and sports is yes, there's like better ways to try to play, right. Obviously in the NBA, um, if you have the best team, but you don't shoot any threes, you're not going to win. Right. Like that's just, you're just not going to be able to score enough points in baseball. Same thing. Like if you're bunting with your best player, like every inning and you're, you know, there's and same with the NFL, right? If you have the Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes, if they were just running every like 80% of the time, they wouldn't be as good. So there are tweaks you can make. But ultimately, I think most of the people that work kind of in this space would say that one of the kind of analytical tenets of sports is like, we don't uh, put enough value on the players. Like the most important, the, pl- the people who win the games are the players. Um, and yet as people that kind of watch who aren't players, I think we tend to give all this credit to these great tactical ideas that these various coaches have as if they're kind of like using a remote control and like telling the players where to move throughout the game. You know, I think what did Mikel Arteta recently said that Arsenal played like 45 formations against Manchester City, which is just absurd. Um, But with that, you know, analytics is almost like, you know, it's a broad term, but like what like Luke would say, he's the most important part of his job is trying to, find better players for his team right and then kind of from there everything works and that's kind of the whole Real Madrid story it's that yeah you just find all the best players and you maybe don't even worry that much about like how you're organizing them Um, and it tends to work out I think I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg this is The Deal each week you'll hear us in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and that's the difference. Because, like, FC Magellan was looking at, like, if they wanted to buy a striker, they would actually look at someone who was underperforming their XG and be like, well, yeah. That's not going to be sustainable for him to miss those chances. That that's just bad luck. So we'll just get him. He's undervalued, and lo and behold, like he'll that will eventually normalize. Like I don't think Real Madrid is. I mean, like I'd be curious to know if you were able to to find out anything about Real Madrid and how they use uh, data, like compared to a team like Liverpool, who obviously are probably one of the forerunners of the big clubs. But yeah, I don't think. Real Madrid are looking at necessarily the fact that Bellingham is first in Bundesliga and successful take-ons. And, you know, like Matt, one of our writers, wrote an article this week on managing Madrid about the fact that we don't have a striker and that we actually have three of the best dribblers in Europe, Bellingham, Vinicius, and Rodrigo. Analytically speaking, these guys like all the 9-9th percentile, we can create so many chances and it may not matter. I don't know if Real Madrid are thinking that way. Like, I don't... that. You know, I don't think they are. I think they're like, okay, we couldn't get Mbappe. I guess we're gonna run it, run it back with Bellingham and see what happens. Like, so, but I'd be curious. Did you did were you able to get anything about Real Madrid in this? Any information on that? I, I don't know anything about Real Madrid in particular. Um, I mean, it is interesting that like, I mean, like that Eden Hazard signing obviously was terrible, um, mm. and I think a lot of you know, that that's just, like, not a signing you would make if you were being run by some, like, analytical director of football, right? If, like, Michael Edwards, we'll say, <laughs> was running Real Madrid. Um, but other than that, right, it's, like, even, like, Luka Jovic was, like, it ended up being kind of a bust, but, like, he had really good underlying numbers and was pretty yeah. young. And I guess that was kind of more at the era before we all started realizing that, like, the Bundesliga numbers can get pretty inflated for for certain players. Hmm. But after that, it's like, I don't know. It's like Kamavinga, Chuamani, like they're, these are all like young players with not, not that many question marks about their game. And th- that's, that is a shift in the way Real Madrid are acquiring players. Right. I mean, obviously like even the last era of Real Madrid, the, I was going to say Modric, but he's on the team, but you know, the Ronaldo era, most of those players joined the team when they were, 24 or younger right they weren't signing any of those guys when they were 28 and that's why the team was so good for so long so i I would be shocked if there wasn't some kind of data analysis that's being done there but i and i think like going toward younger players that you can have for a really long time is in some ways like an analytical ideal idea um and like all of these guys do have like i don't know the last time they you know like uh Maybe in the past, like Real Madrid would have tried to sign like Dusan, like Vlahovic or someone like that, who had like a lot of goals one season. But like, there's a kind of a lot of question marks about where those goals came from and other things that he did. And now they're just like that type of player. I feel like they're not 
they're not really ever in the market for those guys or i don't hear about that anymore which is yeah. suggests that there something changed behind the scenes right well well since the the disastrous hazard and jovic deals i i hope there was it seems like there's been a shift to be like okay because we haven't really seen anything disastrous since then i'm really yeah. glad we got to see vlahovic at juve for another year to kind of see like okay maybe this guy wasn't as good yeah, uh, and maybe that's unfair to him because UA were a mess. But I, I certainly wouldn't have I've, I've signed him. Um, but I, I did. This kind of goes back to something you said in the book that I had pulled up here. Uh, and again, like maybe Real Madrid, like you know, there's no there's no real reason. For example, uh, if for example you want to sign Erling Holland, no one needs to do a deep dive on his analytics, right? You guys are like, okay, it's Erling freaking Holland. You sign him. And I was yeah. going to say, maybe you do that for the younger players, but like even Vinicius and Rodrigo, what advanced analytics could you really dig up from six months in Brazil, right? That tiny yeah. sample size in a different league on another continent. I think at that point, you're just betting on uh, your eye, the eye test at that point. Um, but you did write in your book about Toulouse's success. <clears throat> you said one of Toulouse's first clear analytically inclined strategies was simply to get younger research suggests that performances for players in the top five european leagues tends to peak somewhere between the ages of 24 and 28 with minor differences by position center backs and goalkeepers tend to peak a couple of years later whereas wide attackers tend to peak a year or two earlier uh and one simple way to improve performance then in trying to pack your team with with players toward the beginning of their peak years and that's exactly what Bourne did uh, in that situation. And I think that's what Real Madrid have been doing, really. Uh, yeah. Or or betting like maybe even younger than that. But they've been trying to rely on market opportunities and, and, and younger players who are just about to hit that threshold, which makes sense to me. And it was kind of nice to read that. I'm like, okay, well, this strategy. Um, I, and I, I, won't, I kept saying all summer I would have signed Kane. But when I read things like that, I'm like, okay, well, at least there seems to be some kind of method to the madness here. Yeah, to <clears throat> totally. And there are, obviously, it seems like there's a growing amount of super athletes, like in all sports, right? Um, guys that are just continuing to be like really, really good in their 30s, mid 30s, late 30s in a time where like you would think the level of competitiveness would make it even harder to do that. Cause you know, people are always like, Oh, well we have like health techniques that like extend players careers. But then it's like, we also have all these techniques that should make all the younger players like more athletic too. So like, shouldn't those things cancel out? So that is happening. And I think it's happening with soccer. Um, you know, Benzema having becoming like, having all his best seasons in his thirties, obviously some of that was situational, but I don't think it was totally situational. Um, Modric is still, you know, he's playing much more limited minutes load, but even when he plays still, he's amazing. Um, you know, even with like Liverpool, they, they signed Salah like in his late twenties to a massive contract. And, he never gets injured and looks pretty good still, you know? Yeah. So I think that there are those players too. And I guess when you're Real Madrid, you have the luxury of being able to afford those handful of guys that are really good in their thirties. And then you can pair them with, you know, all of these younger stars that you have. Um, but yeah, I think it's like for a team like Madrid, like using data, it's almost like a way to like 
it's most useful almost in a way to avoid like making a big mistake, right? Rather than like, you know, figuring out exactly which wide forward you need to sign. Um, cause then it, cause it's just like, just do Mbappe and Holland if you can get both of them. And if not, you, you know, get, uh, the guy from Napoli or whatever. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting too that, I mean, you, I don't, I don't know if you actually came out right and said it, but just kind of reading it and, and going over the, the chapters, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that there is, um, that a lot of people feel that there is quite a degree of luck in football, which I don't think is untrue. Um, but I, I did think, and I didn't know this part, although I watched, I watched, uh, Moneyball, um, that, uh, Billy Bean, who obviously um, is a star of the movie Moneyball, and it's a true story. Uh, when it came to the playoff games, he really felt like it was just a coin toss. So he, he wouldn't watch. He would go out in the back, he would work out, he would eat, he would do whatever, and then kind of just see where the coin had landed at the end. Did his team win? Did his team not? Um, and, and, of, and of course, like, I, I, I'm... I have so many notes on your book. Now I'm trying to have, have trouble finding the exact page. But um, you mentioned somewhere that the that something that works in the playoffs, something that works in the regular season rather, doesn't necessarily work in the playoffs. Um, why why do you think that is? Is it just is it a matter of teams taking playoffs more seriously? It's better scouted. Like wh- why is that? Yeah, I mean, so in baseball, like that's the sport that's like the most solved, I guess. And the work publicly and privately that's being done on baseball is like so far advanced from what's happening in soccer Um, to the point where like, honestly, if a major league baseball team makes like a weird decision, you should just like assume that like the thought process that went into it is so much more advanced than anything you could come up with, that it's probably right. Um, And there's people are every year, they look into all right is there anything that like correlates to postseason success that doesn't necessarily correlate as much to regular season success and no one's really been able to find anything and it's not a totally satisfying conclusion to just be like it's just luck you know like in baseball it's a 162 game season but like the best team in the league will frequently lose to the worst team in the league over a single game because that's just how baseball works and so if that's true maybe you get a couple of those games in the playoffs, right? And then all of a sudden you're the best team and you you're out. Um and like the team with the most wins frequently I don't I don't know how often the team with the most wins wins the World Series, but it it's definitely below fifty percent of the time. Um probably significantly below. So I think the main reason is it's just not that many games. So it's hard to like know what'll work at all. Right. And I think the same is kind of true of soccer, right? Like it's uh You know, what, what is the playoffs of soccer? Like, would you would it be like the Champions League knockouts? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah I would say the knockouts because the groups group stages are not they're just not that competitive, right? Because of the way the teams get separated, that it's not yeah. like I think there'll be, there's one group this year that'll be what is it Newcastle, Dortmund, um, Milan, and someone else. That group will be yeah. like every game will be pretty important, but most of the time that's kind of not how it goes. So I would say it's the knockouts, and I mean it's like. Yeah, it's like, 
random stuff can decide one game, right? Like uh, the did Grealish miss last year or did or two years ago or did Mendy clear the ball off the line? I forget what happened. Or did both of those things happen? Both of those there were two separate instances. One is I think Green Mendy cleared one off the line and Griezmann also had a shot. I think saved by Courtois. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So just little things like that, right? Like Mendy clears the ball and maybe it deflects off someone else and then falls to a Manchester City player's foot and it goes in, right? Um, granted, and we've talked about this pretty much for like years now, as I've known you, Real Madrid, for whatever reason, seems to be the team that can deal with all of that random crap happening better than everyone else. But then at the same time, right? Like how long did Real Madrid go without winning a Champions League? What was it? 30 something years? 32 from... years and then 12 years. Yeah. Yeah, and like I, I'm old enough to remember like the kind of like you know the Fernando Torres, Steven Gerrard, like Andrea Dosena, Liverpool, like spanking Real Madrid in the Champions League, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, I'd be, I've been curious about like, is there anything that makes a team more likely to win in the Champions League than? Because Real Madrid is a prime example, right? Like, so they've won how many Champions Leagues? Fourteen. Well, of, of course, uh, oh. overall. <laughs> Recently, I mean, five since since ten. Yeah, so five, mm. and they've basically won what maybe five La Ligas over that same stretch. Yeah, and you would just assume they would have more La Ligas than Champions Leagues because you're just competing against Barcelona most of the time, right? And yet yeah. they don't, and that's. A lot of that is probably kind of just like random, and they probably had a couple years in La Liga where they were probably good enough to win La Liga, and a couple things didn't go their way, and they didn't win, right? But at the same time, it's like it's not a fully satisfying uh, explanation even to me um, that it would just kind of be random. I think randomness plays a much bigger part in soccer than anyone's willing to acknowledge. Um, but at the same time, the th- figuring out the difference between what's kind of variance and what's a real thing that's happening um, is interesting. And I, I don't know. Yeah. With like Madrid, it's just like, I don't know. They're, they have uh, amazing players and like maybe their structure isn't as impressive as these other teams, but maybe cause they don't have as impressive of a structure. The players are able to kind of just like figure things out in these high pressure moments and kind of meld together in these unexpected ways that like other teams aren't able to kind of understand because they're not used to facing those same kind of unexpected patterns. So yeah, I am kind of rambling here, but um, yeah, the champions league is kind of the, I mean, the world cup is the prime example, but that's, you know, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Well, I think this is this part really fascinates me, and uh, I, I I'll save it for the end of the podcast. But I'm curious to know if there was a sequel to this book, what it would look like, because I have some ideas for you. What to write about? I don't know if you're like one of those authors who are like, okay, now that I saw how brutal it is to write a book, I'm done, or are you going to keep going? But <clears throat> uh, I'm going to keep going. Okay, cool. So I have some ideas for the next one, but I think. Like I drive my Barcelona fans nuts because we get into these debates about what's more important, Champions League or or domestic trophies. And of course, I'm a Real Madrid fan, so I will, with bias, say Champions League. And they're Barcelona fans, so they will, without bias, say it's La Liga because it's the consistency over the years, etc. And I always say, like, that's cool that you guys uh, win those games but that's like the regular season you guys but when it comes to the big moments we step up and you guys choke and yeah. they don't really have an answer to that and because we've seen it like they you know it was like eight years in a row where their style of football combination of they were scouted their high line was exposed and then also they just didn't show up they all their starts turned into ghosts whereas us we would be complaining about our domestic form and how bad we're playing and how it's a mess. We're like 15 points behind the league. Then lo and behold, like these knockouts roll around and we're just winning and everyone shows up and all those doing bicycle kicks, Bale's doing bicycle kicks. You know, everyone's going to like more just like dribbling through five players and Benzema was, you know, picking the ball off the goalkeeper. All these things happen with us. And like, but like, I... I've always down like the luck side is it's like it's undoubtedly true that some of these some of these things that happen are like can totally swing either in your favor or the other way like I'm a basketball fan right so I'm a Raptors fan that year when the Raptors won the championship and Kawhi Leonard hits the shot that bounces in a million different ways at the buzzer and finally goes in against the Sixers what if that ball actually bounces a millimeter outside the rim and doesn't fall. I feel like we probably would have lost that game in overtime to the Sixers. We're not winning the championship, and then we're not getting to the, we're not stumbling into the finals where Clay Thompson all of, these, all of a sudden Kevin Durant is you know blowing out their Achilles, and we win the championship. But you have to like go back all the way to like this ball bouncing five times on the rim at the buzzer and winning in unbelievable fashion. And you think back to Ram just 2022 Champions League run. There was now this part is not luck to me because, like you know, I often bring up Messi's Courtois saving Messi's penalty in the in the first leg of the round of 16. Yeah. That I don't know if that's luck, but I think that has to be considered talent of your goalkeeper, right? Even when yeah. with Courtois um, having the game of his life in the final against Liverpool. Or having the game of his life against Manchester City, like that all counts. I don't think that's luck. I think that's yeah. You have to at least fact like respect Courtois in that situation to be like this guy's a genius. 
Um, you know, you replace Courtois with any other random goalkeeper. I don't think Real Madrid are winning the Champions League that year. Yeah. Uh, but I think this like this discussion of luck also goes too far sometimes. Like when we say, okay, like we, we won one Champions League was then people called it lucky. And then you win two and then three. Like at that point, like, come on guys, three in a row. Yeah, come on. Like that's over. Yeah. And then four and then five. Like at some point we have to factor something else in here. I don't, and I don't know how to measure it. I don't know. Like, and this is what I was talking about, like the net gains sequel. Cause Real Madrid barely came up in this book. And like, what is, can, what's the next, like, how do we measure like the psychology of a big moment? Like when, like some players can just slow their heart rate down. And I think some players don't do that as well. I don't know how to measure that. I don't know how to even analyze that. I don't know where that comes into play because this is something different than analytics, if that makes sense. I'm having trouble verbalizing. verbalizing. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. You, I know exactly <clears throat> what you're talking about. Um, so there's like a, a difference between individual and collective behavior, like in science. Um, and with soccer, right, it's not, even if you got really good at figuring out how many goals above average each player is worth over the course of a season, let's say you get all this tracking data, you figure out how each action on the field is worth. You, you figure out like, okay, uh, Chuamani's positioning here throughout the game is, you know, preventing these passes. So we'll give him like half a goal prevented per game or whatever. Even if you do that really well, I don't think it would just be, you add up all of the Real Madrid players and then you know how good the team is, right? It's all about, it's about how good their players are, but then it's about how the players are interacting on the field, both in terms of how their strengths and weaknesses, you know, amplify each other or hurt each other, or whether their um, qualities are like worth like an exponential value where they're multiplying or you just add up their values. And then also how they just like, you know, there's like all this research into how different animals and organisms like work together and like frogs will be able to like sync their heartbeats together basically and like make noise at the same time. So like, why couldn't something like that happen with a soccer team, right? Like, like I was saying, like Real Madrid. I mean, I did, I wrote a piece about this before the Champions League final. I talked to this woman, Jessica Flack, who works at the Santa Fe Institute, which is this college in Mexico, where they do kind of really intense, interesting research. And she's like a collective computing expert. And I kind of raised a bunch of these ideas to her about like, you know, you get this team and like they all the players talk about like how important it is to play for Real Madrid. And after every game, like we didn't we weren't going to lose because we're Real Madrid. And like I was like, could them just talking about this and saying it even players that will say it after they've been on the team for like two weeks. Right. I was like, does that, could that allow them to like summon an ability to to perform in like brief moments throughout a game in a way? Cause like if Real Madrid, like let's take, uh, take like the Man City game end of the end of the Man City two years ago, where they kind of just like suddenly were like, good for three minutes basically and after like even i remember you guys might have been you or 
or was the man managing Madrid account? I remember this that one of you tweeted like, "Yeah, they're just better than us. Like, we'll get them next year, basically, <laughs> before the game was over." And then which one scored... was that, City or PSG? City. Um, okay. And then they scored three goals after uh, your account tweeted that. Um, and like, if Madrid was able to summon that sort of concentrated high level of performance for ninety minutes, like all the players would probably like die of heart attacks or something, you know. And they would like win every game a hundred nothing. So maybe there's a thing where like they kind of have to be a little more passive for a lot of the game, um, and like allow chances to then be able to like summon this collective movement in these moments where they and they can't summon it until like they're under duress right where it's like okay we have to score we now know we have to score here so here's you know this give and go and this outside of the foot pass that no one was seeing and this guy also made this run that no one had made all game and suddenly we score um so i think like there's all kinds of stuff like that i don't know how you would measure it um the woman talked about like wanting like uh like brain sensors on players like during games so you could understand like what's happening mentally to see if what see if there is some kind of like connection across all the players versus kind of just well this is just random but yeah i mean i don't know it's interesting the thing i always think about with all this stuff is like this is all true and even like what you were saying about barcelona real madrid that was all true but then also like I don't know, a lot of the huge games in La Liga during that era, Barcelona would, like, show up against Real Madrid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, so, so that is also kind of strange, too. So, I don't know. It, it's all, I think it's all really interesting. I think that what you're saying, like, that is definitely, like, a frontier for trying to understand the sport better, especially soccer, because it is so dynamic, and it, it's not, it's all about having really good players, but then it's about, all about like the interactions between those players and how those things happen. Yeah, well, I, and I, that's what makes it so hard to measure because sometimes it just it's about momentum too and what each team is going through. So, for example, uh, when Real Madrid were getting outplayed by PSG for a game and a half, that second half of the second leg, everyone was like. Like you know, that's why I asked you: Was that tweet about City or PSG? Because at <laughs> halftime against PSG, everyone was like, "These guys are just better than us." Like, we're yeah. you know, run it back next year, make some signings. And then what happened was it was like two also two polar opposite sides of the coin where Real Madrid are able to play with their backs against the walls and flip the switch. Whereas PSG had the opposite problem for years, where it's like if one thing happens, you're like, oh, it's happening again. We're choking. Yeah. Like one, like that's all it took. Um, and I, and you think, but this wasn't always the case. Like you mentioned that 2009 Liverpool game versus Real Madrid. You know, for years it was the opposite. We were choking in the round of 16. We had multiple round of 16 eliminations. And you also think back to. Ramos's header against Atletico in the 93rd minute like I yeah. I often think about what happens if he doesn't score that header for the what does that mean for the next five years like I don't know like that's a and huge... then it's like they finished third that season in La Liga right something so like that like, yeah then it's like what do we even have to show for this season you know and all then yeah that goes in and then obviously things go well an extra time and then it's like oh we've got 10 and now here's you know 
we're going to win four more over the next six years or whatever. Yeah. And I I, think that's a good point. Oh, I do think there was one thing that, uh, I mean, there are, there are many things I think to be fair, but like one thing that you can look at as something that happened in the second half of the second leg of all those ties in that run was that Real Madrid brought in like five players off the bench who were all young and energetic. Mm -hmm. And then I think that caught off, cut the opponents off guard in the sense that we had been sitting deep for the majority of the tie. Then all of a sudden we started pressing with young legs. And that was, uh, from a tactical perspective, was something that I think caught everyone off guard in that moment. And it flipped the momentum a little bit. And I remember asking Ancelotti about this at Stanford Bridge last year, which of course we didn't win the Champions League last year. City beat us in the semifinal, but... Uh, at Sanford Bridge, it was that weird game where Frank Lampard played Conte as basically a, a striker. And it was actually giving us all kinds of problems, right? And, yeah. and, and, yeah. but, Anc- and they were like pressing and stuff. And Ancelotti said, like, well, I asked him about this. Like, I was like, so what happened in the second half that you were able to, you know, ultimately overturn it and get out of your half? And he said, yeah, we, we knew that Chelsea we're going to press and did that. We also knew they weren't going to sustain it. And we had subs. And I was like, well, that, that was like kind of like the plan for all these games was like, let's just let them press us. We'll ride it out. And then we'll bring on subs. And then we know they'll be drained. Obviously, once they got to the Etihad in the second leg that, you know, they were just, we just got dominated, but you know, they were, there were different uh, ways that actually I tried to combat it either way, but yeah. Now we're deviating. There's, there's from from net That's gains fine. and analytical revolution. Okay. But uh, I I know we only have a few minutes left. I did want to ask you. I'm trying to think of what to prioritize now. Um, Javier Fernandez, I think, is his his first name was Javier, right? The Barcelona yes. guy. Yes. Um, can can you can you talk about him? Just give the listeners introduction to him. Yeah, so he's uh, this Chilean, uh, I guess, data scientist, but that probably undersells how um, accomplished he is, who um, eventually started working for Barcelona. And I guess did he, be, he became essentially the head of analytics in Barcelona. And I don't know if you've... I feel like I'm not seeing him as much, but there's like the Barca analytics in, or Barca innovation hub, this big thing that they've been, they've been talking about for the past 10 years. And, you know, so Javier works for, works for Barcelona is a g- genius guy when it comes to soccer and kind of trying to measure what's happening and figure out what's happening on the field. And I wanted to talk to him one, cause he's really smart, but also two, like he was working for Barcelona, like, as the decline for Barcelona began, right? And so in my head, I'm like, okay, they got this like brilliant guy they hired to kind of help them make better decisions, I guess, ultimately, right, is what this is all kind of geared toward. And why did it, why did that coincide with the team getting worse? And then, you know, you talk to him and you find out, well, you know, the teams are really only listening to these people kind of as like, one, they're asking the, these people to like measure things in training or in games that like maybe aren't the best things to be measured. Um, but the, you know, you have to do it if the manager asks you. And then two, you know, you're like you said earlier, like you're a 
you're a Chilean data scientist. Like I'm a guy that's uh, played at La Masia growing up. And now I'm like the assistant coach of Barcelona. Like, what are you, what are you going to tell me? Um, but when, you know, he pointed out that like, sometimes some of the stuff he would study would find that, oh, you know, maybe we want to like be more aggressive with our passing kind of here, or we want to target this player who isn't as sort of secure on the ball, but he's very aggressive and he kind of is able to make um, all this really interesting stuff happens happen up the field, which outweighs the fact that maybe he's going to lose the ball more than you would want for your typical tiki-taka Barcelona player. And that he would come, he would have a lot of, he'd get a lot of pushback um, from those ideas. And I think you can kind of envision it, right? Yeah, Barcelona, when he comes in, they've been pretty much incredibly successful almost the entire time. Um, you know, they ushered in this new era of soccer and he's coming in, has no soccer background and is also like, well, what about, what do you think about like these, what do you think about like hitting a long ball um, in these situations rather than uh, trying to pass it back to the keeper? And you can sort of see how hard that would be for someone like that to get <laughs> any of their ideas across, but you can also see how kind of that closed-minded mentality is part of what led Barcelona to the situation they're currently in. Well, I, I guess you kind of answered it, but I was going to ask, like, what do you think, how much influence he actually had? Um, I often think back to, like, the Griezmann signing and how, really, yeah, when you think about it, if you have such a great... Yeah, it's their hazard Barcelona. signing. <laughs> if you have such a great mind in your analytics department, you have all this tech tech available to you, Where what, what, what good does it do if you're just going to sign... Uh, I guess an inferior version of Messi in the same position. Um, yeah. Or like all the, you know, from after they won the champions league, that array of like Andre Gomez and, uh, Dennis Suarez and Mm. Luca Digne, that just like all of these players that were just like not cheap and also just like are so not at the level required (laughs) to compete for the champions league every year. And they had, they pretty much made a terrible signings for like four years in a row, basically. And those are like all kind of signings, right. That are like, the guys weren't even that young. And then there was like, I guess they were able to sell a bunch of them, but like, I don't know. They're like the signings were like the upside is minimal and the downside is also high, you know, because like you're paying like 50 million for Andre Gomez um, when like, the best case scenario is that he's a $50 million player. So those are also very, we're all kind of like just moves you wouldn't be making if you were kind of thinking more, more aggressively about like how, you know, what, how many goals are these signings going to add to our team? How are they going to, how many goals are they going to prevent and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, it's also interesting, like with, with Fernandez and his ideas, if you, if you look at how much Pep has changed, his style of play yeah. since then, I would say maybe you could argue Fernandez was right in that situation. I mean, oh, he was Pep definitely is, right. Yeah, Pep is quite fluid in the, in the, in the way like his his ideas now, and it, it, I think it's changed saw quite it a last bit. Year. Yeah, it's all like gigantic guys, basically, like to completely oversimplify it. It's playing almost four center backs at the same time. Rodri is massive. De Bruyne is huge for an attacking midfielder. Holland's a, a shit house. Grealish isn't tall, but his legs are like the size of like a f- two fire hydrants. So it's like Gundogan and Bernardo Silva surrounded by just up t- and Bernardo's like a freak athlete, right? He's has incredible endurance. Um, 
then yeah, even the Arsenal game last year, like a couple of City's goals came from like long balls to Holland. He he knocks it down to De Bruyne, and then they score. <laughs> so he's Pep's ideas have changed a lot, and even City doesn't really. They're they're like encouraging teams to get on the ball more and to come into their defensive third, which like the Barcelona and Bayern era Peps was like, if the team crosses midfield, we've failed, <laughs> you know. So, right. Very different now. Very, yeah, very different. I, and I think it's interesting that you know, when you read the book, there's there's also different. Obviously, different teams have found different ways to create more chances than your opponents. I mean, like transition mm-hmm. opportunities are one of those ways where you can have. Yep. 20% of possession, but having a higher XG than your opponent if you play your cards right. Uh, I also thought, I, and again, I don't, I couldn't find it. I have so many notes on your book. I don't remember exactly what page or what context it was, but someone had come up with the idea that why don't we just kick the ball away? Like intentionally give the ball away to them so that we can just win it back from them in a more dangerous area. Like why do why waste our time building up? Let's just give it to them and then press them and, and score goals. And I, I can't remember. Maybe you don't remember off the top of your head uh, who it was that came up with that. But um, Yeah, well, that's sort of the Charles Reap, like, general idea that he had. Mm-hmm. And then it's been made modern more by, like, the Red Bull gegen pressing <clears throat> approach, which is in some ways is based on data where it's, like, this guy Ralph Radnick who um, – you know, was last seen being the manager of Manu for half a season, but yeah. he kind of developed the Red Bull sporting identity. And, um, you know, he found research that found like, you know, the goal, the best time to score a goal is within eight seconds of winning the ball back. And, you know, from there you build out, okay. Um, that means we want to win the ball high up the field. Um, cause we're closer to the goal. It'll be easiest to move it to the goal. And if we're if we're premising our game on being really quick attacking when we win the ball back high up the field, that encourages us to be more aggressive when we have the ball because we're kind of building our identity around losing the ball. So it's like that encourages the teams to play, or try to just play a bunch of aggressive through balls, right? Like the kind of almost the FIFA style where you press triangle or whatever and then it doesn't work come off and then you swarm the guy with the ball and then you try it again because you know that you're like the best at the moments when you lose the ball um and so that's kind of where the the whole red bull thing came around but then there's the whole there's the idea of like that was that's a good strategy for a lot of teams and i think pretty much all sports right like more aggressive strategies are kind of probably always just the best ones over the long the long haul um that's just kind of what we've seen. And I think there's no reason to think soccer wouldn't, wouldn't hold true in that regard. Um, but, you know, should Real Madrid be trying to play the Red Bull style? Like I probably don't think so. <laughs> you know what I mean? There might be diminished. There's probably diminishing returns on that style as you get to the absolute peak of the sport. But for the average kind of mid table team, I think, I think if I was, you know, running a team that would, that would be where I would go. Cause I, I don't know, to me, it's like the, all like the best kind of analytically informed strategies in sports are the ones that like, when they fail, they look the worst. So people are like, you know, when you go for it on fourth down and you don't get it, people are like, you're an idiot. Or when yeah. you have a game like the Rockets against the Warriors conference finals, the Rockets went like three for 30 from three in one game. And it's like people watching are like, they got to just take it to the basket. Right. Like yeah. the shots aren't falling. And it's like, well, the shots won't fall if you don't keep taking them. And I think with the pressing style, right. It's like 
the goals you do give up look pretty terrible, right? If the press gets broken yeah. Um, and you're going to probably have a couple of games where you get blown out by the bigger teams. But the bet you're making is that over the course of the whole season, playing this way is going to lead to more wins. And I think, I think that's probably kind of where I would land. If I was kind of the average team in Europe, I would try to build things toward that style. But then once you get higher up, I'm not sure if it would still be worth doing. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Well, that's also interesting because and we don't necessarily have time to get into it now because we've got to wrap it up. But the uh, the idea of playing that way can sometimes also be dependent on not only like you have a bad day, you know, you get exposed and you get unlucky, but how good is the opponent you're playing against? Like how... how how yeah. like you're like you brought up the Fulham example where in the second division their style of play was so dominant and as soon as they got promoted and they kept that style of play they just got blown out because other teams are just more talented right and so you can't so you, yeah. like you might have we're to be adaptable it. in that situation that's happening with Burnley this season so far in the Premier League too they were you know Vincent Company Pep disciple playing really kind of attractive soccer in the championship. And then it's been terrible in the Premier League um, yeah. because they just they have worse players than all the teams they're playing against, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, like you know, I think it's pretty smart. Like, uh, I, I I hate Katafe because I hate the way you know because we saw them kick the shit out of Real Madrid recently, and of course yeah. they just signed Greenwood, so now I really hate them. But like, yeah, they're they, really digging into that identity. Yeah, so they're really leaning into like uh, the villain villain uh, narrative, but. I remember Bordelas, like Chavi complained about Bordelas, like this is not football, like Lali has to do something about it. And Bordelas was like, hey man, I could open up and play, try to play football against you and get destroyed. Is that what you want? Like, so like, I I understand that side. Like you you have to, like, you can't just like Paco Jemez with Rayo Vallecano. uh, This happened with Las Palmas too. They tried to play really expansive attacking football and like they became like hipster teams like people like like them but they also just got destroyed so many times yeah. so like that's something that like i do like about ancelotti is that he's not that rigid with like okay well if, if i'm playing against barca or city and it may work or may not but like we gotta we gotta be realistic here um yeah. and kind of be adaptable yeah. yeah no and i think that's kind of why i find all this stuff interesting like i don't think there'll ever be one optimal way to play soccer for all these reasons i think we still don't really know that much about how it works which i think is kind of a crazy thing given how popular it is um but i don't think we're ever going to get to a point where it's like the nba where it's kind of a 
everyone's kind of doing the same thing and you watch a game and it's like, you know, for me, I still like watching the NBA, but like a lot of times I'll watch a game with a soccer game. I, I can, I know which team like fundamentally played better when I watch a game, pretty much every game I watch. Right. Mm. And then I know that like the scoreline maybe doesn't line up with that, but I can tell who played better because you're just trying to create more chances than your opponent for the most part. Mm. Um, with the NBA, sometimes to me, it's like, I can't tell if the team played well or like if the shots just happened to go in this, <laughs> this night for this team. But I don't think we're ever going to get to that point with soccer because of what you're saying, right? Or because of everything we've talked about, because the way players interact with each other will change based on the different players, based on how old those players are. And then it's not a game where um, it's not football where you have four downs and you have a very concrete objective every time you touch the ball and you can right. draw plays. It's just half of the game is determined by what the other team decides to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, which I think makes it, um, that's part of the reason why, why I love the sport so much. And I think like take Atletico Madrid, for example, right? Like this title they won in 2014, 2014, right? The that's like, title, yeah. that's like more impressive to me than Leicester winning, given that they beat Real Madrid mm-hmm. and Barcelona, both like while those two teams won they were in the midst of winning back-to-back Champions League titles. Like over a league season, beating those two teams is like incredible. And then they won again. And then they had, have had a lot of ch- success in the Champions League. And I think part of it comes from like, they tried doing something different from everyone else, right? They had a, they had a decent amount of resources and were good at identifying players, but like they kind of made sort of defense, being a good defensive team, their, their focus while in an era where all the other top teams were trying to be more attacking and they've had a lot of disappointing seasons. Um, Cause when you play defensive soccer and it doesn't go well, it still looks like shit and mm. people get angry, mm-hmm. but it's also probably provided them with the potential for those handful of title winning seasons that they had too, simply because they decided to just like try something different from everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it fascinating. Like there's so many different ways that teams have, have done it over the years that I think it just makes it interesting. But nevertheless, yeah. well, the, I think all we can do is just try our best to keep trying to understand it with yeah. every 1% increment that we can. I think this job, exactly. this book does a great job of it. I would encourage everyone to read it. Uh, there is actually enough, uh, winks to Real Madrid fans in this book that you won't be disappointed. You, there is, there is also a good, uh, section about why Christian, Cristiano Ronaldo's scoring slump one year was just bad luck and why it normalized and he became a free goal scorer after that. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes so people can go and purchase it from, I assume, Amazon, right? Yeah, where, wherever you like to buy your books from is what Beautiful. I tell people. You can find it anywhere. So. Awesome. Ryan, thanks for your time, man. Look forward to the next book and look forward to uh, – uh, honestly, I didn't even mean this as a dig. I was going to say next time we we play Liverpool in the Champions League, but then I forgot. Hey, could, next could year, be maybe. in the Europa League this season. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. Uh, all right, Ryan. Thanks for your time, buddy. Good chatting. Yeah. Th- thanks for having me. Sports Social Podcast Network.